Well, this morning we are turning to the book of Jonah, or in Hebrew, Yonah. Yonah the dove, as his name means, dove. So please turn with me to the book of Jonah. As we turn to your word, we ask that your spirit might illuminate our hearts and that we might be drawn closer to you this morning. In Yeshua's name, amen. Yonah is a great book in the Trey Asar, the 12 prophets that have been given to us, sometimes called the minor prophets. And now that we have reached this point where we are looking at the book of Yonah, we are actually at a point where the, the Trey Asar change slightly in the way that these series of prophecies and prophets address us. And Yonah is, unlike some of the others, it is a story. It's a story that some of us might be familiar with from when we were young in Shabbat school or Sunday school, where we have learned the scriptures, like Timothy possibly, from our youth. But Yonah is far more than a story. It's a carefully written short book. It's something that is clearly more than just the recollections of Yonah, but it is carefully composed because here is a message that is a message that endures. It is not just a message for his generation, not just the message for his comrades and compatriots in the town of Gat Hefer, but it is a message that speaks throughout all time and speaks to us today. Yonah is indeed from Gat Hefer. If we were to turn to Second Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, we have him mentioned there. And in those verses... We learn a little bit more about him. Second Kings 14 and verse 25. The Lord had spoken through his servant, Yonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gat Hefer. This is the one that we are looking at today. Gat Hefer is a small town. It's basically not a town that really exists today. It's about five kilometers north of Nazareth or Nazareth. Nazareth is about halfway between the Galil or the, the Canaret on the inland side to the east and on the, the west, the Mediterranean Sea. It is a uh, place, therefore, that's in the north of Israel. It's in an area that's somewhat lush and more verdant than the south. Today, when you go to Israel and as you travel through the north, you are driving through forests, maybe not with 150-foot Douglas firs like we have here on the west coast, but nevertheless a forest. And I remember on my first trip that I went through, uh, went to Israel on with my father and mother as they were leading a tour in Israel, there were little plantings 
all over the north, and, and what they called forests were very sparse. But today it is a forested region. And so Yonah is from this part of the country where trees and, and, and plants can thrive. He is far from the centers of power which are in Samaria and are in Bethel and are in Jerusalem. So he's from a more provincial place, somewhat close, as we've already noted, to Nazareth, where Yeshua, too, was raised, far from the corridors of power. Someone might say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, he wasn't too far from there. It wasn't a powerful place. And he's asked and given a job. And here we turn to the book itself. Vayehi devar Adonai el Yonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a direct command to Jonah. And actually when we see this language, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, it is typically language that precedes a di- direct instruction to do something. In 1 Kings 21 and verse 17, we, we see this, this very thing. 1 Kings 21 and verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Eliyahu the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahav, Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. The wording is the same. Vayahi devar Adonai. And it was, literally, and it was the word of the Lord to, for in Kings, to Eliyahu, and here to Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's a word that precedes action. The Lord also speaks to Hezekiah, and he says, the word, the word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the kings of Judah, and he tells him what is going to happen. And so here is Jonah. The word of the Lord came to him. Tradition says that this happened when he was in Jerusalem, and as he was in Jerusalem, and he, he was worshipping. He was specifically at the festival of Sukkot. And he was actually at the ceremony where water is drawn and poured out before the Lord. This is in the autumn. It's in the fall. Before people, as, as people begin their prayers for pray, for rain and for blessing upon the people of Israel. Just when he is, according to tradition, to tradition, beginning to pray for God's blessing upon his land, God tells him something that's going to shock him. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. This isn't something that Yonah wants to hear. Now, Nineveh is today a ruin. It's actually a ruin within the very city that is in the midst of a war right now as the nations 
of Iraq and their allies, including uh, many Western powers, are seeking to, by one means or another, uproot radical Islam and, and the Islamic State out of that city. So you see Mosul in the news a lot, and we'll see it in the news for a little while. Within that city, on the western bank, are the ruins of Nineveh. It's actually in the province that is today still called Nineveh on the Tigris River. It's just east of Syria. You, nowadays, you can do what I did. I checked on Google Maps. It'll take you an hour and 40 minutes, 117 kilometers, to drive to the west, and you will be in Syria. This is where it is. It's not too far, in reality, from where Jonah was raised. He's raised in the north. If he goes to the Lake of Galilee and up the mountainside, he is in the Golan Heights. And then it's a straight shot across Syria, which was Syria then as it is now, to, to uh, the city of Nineveh. So it's not a city that Jonah is unaware of. And he understands what the Lord is saying as he is called. Their wickedness has come up before me. The city built by, as we see in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 11, by Nimrod, the mighty hunter. Here is this mighty city, and it has become a wicked place. It is a great city now, and it's not a city that Jonah is happy with because as a great and wicked city, they have been spreading their influence and they have been imposing their power upon the people of Israel. They are a tremendous enemy. They are a threat. Their cultural influence is unwelcome. And their wickedness has come up before the Lord. And you might think, why would... Jonah be concerned. There's nothing here that specifically says he is supposed to go to Nineveh and do something good for them. Except that there is a little bit of a hint because the Lord says, go and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. He's given a job. He is to cry out with the words of God. And this is where we have the rebellion of Jonah at the very beginning of the book. This is how it starts out because Jonah is going to rebel. Here is a task that God has given him and it is not a task that he wants because he knows that in every message of God to, to condemn, there is also a message to repent there is always the possibility that we might return to the Lord when we hear his voice, when we hear his judgment. We see this throughout the prophets again and again. Israel and Judah and even the nations round about are, are condemned because of their sins. And every time there is the opportunity for repentance. I've just switched to my local mic here. I forgot to turn it on. The message for repentance is always there. 
Jonah does not want to bring the message of the Lord to the people of Nineveh. It's a dilemma. If he calls them to repent, and they do repent, what does this say about his own people Israel? Because Ovadia, who's somewhat contemporary with him, has cried out to Israel. And other prophets have cried out to Israel, and Israel has not repented. Does he want to go to Nineveh and preach the message of repentance and horrifyingly find out that they will repent, whereas his own people haven't? Jonah is not someone who's going to be excited by that prospect. He would love to see the judgment of God on Nineveh. He would love to see that city destroyed. It would mean more peace for him and for his country. But secondly, if they repent, there's another problem for him because he knows human nature. He, they repent, they hear the news that God is a forgiving God, but once they've repented and God's wrath relents and nothing happens, what are they going to say? They're going to say, you know, I don't know if that guy was a prophet anyway. Why did we go through all that repentance? Nothing happened. They're going to say, Jonas, a phony. So he has a lot of reasons not to cry out, a lot of reasons not to call out to the people of Nineveh with the words of God. And sometimes we too find ourselves in a rebellious position. We find that we have this tremendous message we find that we have this message that not only tells the world that it has fallen short of God's righteousness, but we also have a message that tells of God's mercy. And sometimes we are afraid to bring this message to our world. We're afraid sometimes to enter the worlds of journalism. We're, we're not encouraging ourselves and those who are young among us to enter the legal professions and political professions where we can have an influence on our world. And sometimes on a practical level, we're not really paying much attention to those things that we are doing that are tremendous works that bring glory to the Lord. Um, we've got the Union Gospel Mission in Vancouver. It is a tremendous institution. In Toronto, the main institution like that is one that was established by Jewish believers years and years ago. These are institutions that we need to be behind and supporting because we have a prophetic message to our nation. We have a prophetic message to our world. We have a message that trans transcends liberalism or conservatism or even progressive conservatism. We have a message that speaks to all people, to all Canadians, wherever they are, and says that God is a God who cares about this nation enough to maybe judge it, but certainly enough to bring it to repentance and to offer his forgiveness. So we have the rebellion of Jonah in the first three verses, and this is the first thing we learn about this man. All we know is he is the son of Amittai. And 
that instead of listening to God, in verse 3, he went down to Joppa. That's a long way. That's all the way to southern Israel now on the south coast. Go any further south, he's in the region of the Philistines. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He didn't want anyone to know he was leaving the country. He could have gone closer by to Akko, where there is a harbor. He goes south, doesn't want anyone to know what he's doing, and he's going to Tarshish. He is going to go, as we know, as far as he can from God. He pays the fare. Travel was not cheap. And went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is rebellion. He is not only not going to do what God has said, but he is not even going to go close. He is going to go the other direction. He's going to do what, it, what will make it basically impossible for him to fulfill the task that God has given to him. He is so convinced that God has told him to do this that he is laying down his cold, hard cash. And it was hard cash. It was gold and silver coins in that day. He is going to give them away. He's going to give away his wealth so that he can get away from what he knows is God's calling upon him. But this is what brings up the next section of the chapter. Moving from his rebellion, we see restitution beginning to take place because actions are brought to pass, first by God, then by, the, then by Jonah himself, and then by the men that he is with. Actions that result in restitution. So we see in verse 4, the beginning of this, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea so that there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. These are the words of someone who was there who knew about that storm because he had lived through it. He knew that the ship was about to be broken up and in those days ships were uh, bound together with, with uh, metal pegs and they were built with planks of wood they were not uh, unified hulls like we have today. They weren't as strong. In fact, sometimes we have records and we, we, we actually have examples of ships that have been held together by ropes that have been run under them from one side of another to try and hold them together during heavy storms and heavy weather in that day. So this ship was literally about to be broken up. Water must have been leaking in. They must have been seeing that the boards were getting loose and they were in danger. Great wind. And Jonah has seen it. And he knows that God is speaking through this storm. The mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God, as they say. There are no atheists in foxholes. It's an old saying. In fact, a chaplain uh, recently got in trouble with the government for bringing this up in a blog, and an atheist association argued and said his blog must be taken off the Internet because he is offending us atheists. 
But we know as a general rule, it's true. The blogs back up. Um, people, when they are afraid, they have no more resources in themselves. They realize they need to cry out. And they cried out to their gods. And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the men were crying out as the Lord acted. And it was clear that the Lord was acting. And do you think Jonah didn't know what was going on? He knew why this was happening, as we'll see in the next few verses. And what was his action? He went down to sleep. Here is someone who is in deep trouble. He is in trouble not only physically, in danger of his life, but he is in trouble spiritually because he is going not only physically away from God, but he is going spiritually away from God. And this has caused a, a effect on his soul that enables him even to sleep during the storm because he has lost that which matters. He has lost his relationship to the Almighty. The physical sleep parallels his spiritual sleep. This is someone who is falling into a deep depression because he knows he is doing what is wrong. And so the captain, verse 6, came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? You can see the sarcasm, the, the anger in the captain's voice. What on earth are you doing sleeping at this time? You might be a passenger, but we're all in this boat together. Why aren't you praying to your gods? or your God. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And obviously, it's a very cosmopolitan world back then as it is now. He doesn't know anything about Jonah, really. Many different people of many different nationalities travel on his boat. He doesn't bother finding out anything. But he assumes that at this point, Jonah could at least cry out to his God. Whoever this God is, cry out to him. And so Jonah has been woken up, and now, now he's going to be incredibly embarrassed because they are now going to cast lots. And as they cast their lots, it's kind of like casting dice, and whoever gets the six, that's the person. They find out who it is who is, who is causing the problem. Verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for, know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Nailed. <laughs> now they know. It's this guy who is sleeping in the bottom of the ship who is the cause of all of this trouble. And we can be reminded of those scriptures that, that remind us that, you know, we may have secret sins, but at some point they will be broadcast from the housetops. From, at some point they will become evident. I mean, I think we all got horrified and, and, uh, 
and maybe shook our heads when a few months ago a tape of Donald Trump talking to a, a another television personality in extremely vile terms came came to light and was you know broadcast on the media. His sins came to light, and this happens so often. We may think we have our our own private sins, but eventually they become known. And Jonah's been found out. And as a result, as happens with us, he's ashamed. So the Lord has acted. And now Jonah, now it's Jonah's time to act. His sins have been found out, and he has to confess. And he says to them in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, and he uses the personal name of God. Nowadays we say Hashem or Adonai, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So right there he is claiming something that is incredibly embarrassing because he's saying you're crying to your gods. And you might be from Ephesus, so you're crying out to your god, goddess from Ephesus, or some other sailor might be from some other part, and he's crying out to his God or gods. But my God is the God who made this ocean that we're about to drown in and the dry land. My God is the God of heaven and earth. And I'm the one who's caused the problem. Imagine the shame that was in his heart. The shame of having to confess. He is the one who should be the reason for their safe passage. And instead, he is the reason for their impending destruction. That can happen to us as believers too. Sometimes um, sometimes our witness to the Lord can actually be destructive. And we need to watch how we live so that we can bring glory to him when it is our time to testify. And so we See, they ask Jonah in verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And in verse 12, he says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Jonah is so depressed. He is so cast down. And his spiritual funk is so deep that he can only suggest that they throw, them, throw him out of the boat. He's not even willing or able to jump out of the boat himself. And more strikingly, here is the one who does not want to go to Nineveh because he knows if he goes to Nineveh and the people there cry out for God's mercy, God is a merciful God, and God will hear their voice, and God will forgive their sins, and as he says, particularly concerning Israel, heal their land. He knows what kind of God he has. And what does Jonah do? He doesn't pray. That would have been the logical thing, because he believes this. But his spiritual depression is so deep, he can't even turn to the one whom he knows will forgive. 
the one whom he knows will calm the storm and say, God, I have sinned. I will return. I will repent. And he doesn't make his own teshuvah. He doesn't cry out to God himself because he is so far from God now. It's a terrible dark day for Jonah. Sometimes we get to that point. Sometimes we think, how can God forgive me? I have these sins. I have these problems. And I have not been faithful to you. And not only do I have these sins, but I've done it again and again, and I've asked you to forgive me again and again. And we say, how could God forgive? But Jonah is an example of one who shows that God forgives. That's what this book is all about. God is a forgiving God. And Jonah had the opportunity. He could have turned to the ever-living, ever-merciful God, and he could have found mercy on that day. He didn't have to be thrown into the sea, but that's all that he could think of because his shame was so great. God wants to deliver us from shame. God wants to deliver us from the oppression of the evil one who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Because that is what the evil one is trying to do. He is trying to make us live under condemnation. When God is in the business of trying to get us to live under his mercy, realizing that he is a forgiving God, and to walk in newness of life because he is the God who wants to enjoy our company. And he wants to enjoy us living and vibrant. He wants to enjoy us at our best. And he wants to forgive. And all he asks is that we turn to him in repentance. Jonah was suffering, as it were, the death penalty. There's a saying in, in the Jewish writings in, uh, in Sanhedrin, in the Babylonian Talmud, that one who suppresses his prophecy is liable to the death penalty at the hands of heaven. And here is Jonah. He has certainly suppressed his prophecy. But God is a forgiving God. Jonah is not an atheist. He hasn't said God does not exist, that doesn't even come into the equation. He is just so far from God. He doesn't feel he's worthy. But he is worthy. As we'll see in the coming weeks, as we look at Jonah 2-4, to we see that Jonah is worthy of God's forgiveness. And if Jonah is worthy of God's forgiveness, the one who knew the truth, knew it deeply, who preached it, and yet disobeyed his God and fled from him, if God could have mercy on Jonah, he could have mercy on those Ninevites who barely know that God exists and are worshiping idols of wood and stone and metal. God is a forgiving God. And so the men act. This is the third action of the men as, uh, as restitution begins to be made. The third act, and this one by the men. First by God, then by Jonah, now by the men. The men 
row hard. Verse 13. They're sailors. They're not murderers. They're businessmen. They're tradesmen. They, they travel the world. They're hardened to storms. They've been through them before. But this one is scaring the living daylights out of them. So they row hard. They are going to do everything they can to return to land. But they cannot, we read in verse 13. For the sea continued to grow more and more tempestuous against them. They are seeking to save themselves. Another lesson in humanity. We always try our best to do things by ourselves. We, we do everything we can so we can get through. But ultimately, we have to come to the end of ourselves. Ultimately, we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't save ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves sometimes. It takes God to do that. And these men were coming to the end of themselves in verse 13. But the sea continues to grow more and more um, tempestuous against them. And so they cry out. And they know that they, they cannot do anything other than what Jonah has said. Verse 14, they cried out to the Lord. And now for the first time, maybe in their lives, they are acknowledging the God of the Hebrews, the God of both the sea and the dry land. And for the first time, they cry out to him. And what is their prayer? We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. In reality, it's a prayer for forgiveness. O Lord, please forgive us because we have no option. They don't want to do this, but this is what they are going to end up doing. As Jonah has said, they are going to have to throw him overboard. So we read in verse 15, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Wow, they, they had got to an amazing point. This must have been somewhat traumatic for these average, everyday sailors. Here they're throwing someone overboard. They spent their lives trying to keep their passengers and other seamen from falling overboard. That's the worst thing that can happen. You stay on that boat. And yet they throw Jonah overboard. They are confessing. They are asking for forgiveness before they even do the evil deed. But Jonah has already suggested to them that God is a forgiving God. And they are beginning to get the picture. So they threw him into the sea. Confession and asking for forgiveness are such important things. James chapter 5 and verse 16 reminds us, the book of Yaakov, properly pronounced, Yaakov chapter 5 and verse 16, confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. 
The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Confess. And, and confess your trespasses. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession is so important. Jonah has, in a sense, in essence, confessed now. And now he is bearing the consequences of his confession. But it is going to result in his forgiveness. It is going to result, as we'll see in future chapters, in God doing a work in his life. And so Jonah is thrown into the sea. Today we have avenues for confession. I believe the greatest avenue for confession is among brothers and sisters in the Messiah, not without discrimination. One always needs to make sure that the person one shares with is safe. But nevertheless, confession is important. I think 12-step groups got a hold of this truth years ago, and the reason they got hold of this truth is because originally they, the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous movement was based on scriptural values and based on the scriptures. And when people enter a 12-step group, and there are all kinds of 12-step groups, not only for alcohol, but for people who spend too much, people to eat too much, people who uh, struggle with pornography on the Internet, all of these things, and, and far more, um, people go into a 12-step group, and it's anonymous, but they give their name. They, they do identify their name, their first name. Hi, I'm John. And everyone else identifies them and says, Hi, John. And you're identified. And even though it's anonymous, then confess your sins. It is a biblical principle that works. And we need to confess our sins one to another. Jonah confessed his sins. He is thrown into the sea. And now repentance takes place. Verse 16. Now, the Jewish commentary that I have titles this last section of the chapter as the conversion of the crew. I really like this because it's not often that you find in a Jewish text talks talk about conversion. But these people really were changed. These people really realized the might of the one true God. Jonah could not help himself but be a prophet. And isn't that amazing? We cannot help ourselves even when we fail the Lord. God will use us to his glory, just as happened with Jonah. So here is Jonah in the sea, and the sea has ceased from his raging. But in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows they feared him. They understood the power of our mighty God who could cause the seas to go back and forth, who could put their lives in such danger, who could um, take the very elements of the world and turn them upside down. A storm like they had probably never seen before in their lives. They knew the power of God power of God that sometimes God reveals in the power of nature. They feared him exceedingly. The second thing we learn about them is they offered a sacrifice. 
They didn't know anything about the Torah. They didn't know how to offer a sacrifice, I'm sure. But they did what they could. We don't know how, but somehow, either on that boat or as some people have suggested, maybe as soon as they got back to land, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Because they said, we are in your service. Offering a sacrifice is a way of giving praise and adoration to the Almighty God. Of saying, our lives are like this sacrifice at your service. Let us be your servants. And we read that they took vows. This was no superficial thing. This was no thing that just happened at the moment. But because of what their interaction with Jonah and having met God through him, they made vows. They actually changed their lives. We don't know exactly what those vows were, but I think the implication is that they vowed to worship him. They vowed to serve him. They truly were changed people. They feared the Lord, offered a sacrifice, and took vows. And so their lives had been changed. And so we read, starting in verse 17, the next chapter in the story that the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. We'll learn more about that as we continue through this book that has far more in it than might appear at first reading of what is a nice story, in a sense, for us today. But it's far more than a story. It's deep and includes, in, includes the teaching of the Lord. Tradition says that Jonah lived to 120 years, a good long life, long after this. God is indeed a merciful God. Of course, the tradition is entirely unverifiable, but it tells you. It was expected that Jonah lived a good long life. Today, in our world, we read the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur. We read it because of the message that it contains that no one can escape God's judgment. But the second reason we read it is that God is also merciful to all those who are penitent. And that is a great message that comes across so beautifully in this first chapter as Jonah is thrown into the sea. And so we have the message of the rebellion of Jonah. We have the restitution that took place as the sailors had to do what was necessary at Jonah's instruction to set things right. And then we have the repentance of the sailors that brings glory to God. Because this is what God wants from the world and from us. So let us be those who live for him and who accept his offer of forgiveness for us. Because I think all of us can sometimes stand in need of understanding and grasping hold of the forgiveness of God. And not only so, but accepting it for ourselves as well. Because if God forgives us, we should be able to forgive ourselves as well. Amen. 
Avinu Sheva Shemaim, we thank you for your word, which so beautifully shows your character to us. Working through the life of Yonah and through the events that take place and took place in his life. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that we have a great message for this world that stands under condemnation. That yes, you are merciful. If only we would turn to you and accept the forgiveness that you offer. Father, we pray that we might rejoice and live in your forgiveness as your forgiven and accepted children. We pray this in Yeshua's own name. Amen.